Welcome to Reconquest on the Crusade Premium Channel, part of the Veritas Radio Network. This is Brother Andre Marie coming to you from St. Benedict Center in Richmond, New Hampshire. Our websites are Catholicism.org and Reconquest.net. My email address, should you like to send me a brief comment, question, or suggestion, is bam at Catholicism.org. That's bam at Catholicism.org. You can find me on social media. I'm on both Twitter and Facebook. Just search for Brother Andre Marie, and you will find me on both. This evening's episode is episode number 219, and we're calling it The Mississippi Flows into the Tiber, which happens to be the name of a book by my guest, Mr. John Beaumont. The main issue facing the church is conversion. Is baptism necessary for salvation? Is it necessary for everyone? Is it necessary for Jews? John Beaumont's Compendium of American Catholic Converts, The Mississippi Flows into the Tiber, subtitled A Guide to Notable American Converts to the Catholic Church, Fidelity Press 2014, presents an exhaustive list of conversion stories which show that nothing has changed in God's eyes. The same call that Elizabeth Ann Seton answered over 200 years ago is still answered in our day by people who know that there is only one effective response to the question, what must I do to be saved? The author, John Beaumont, is a lawyer by training. He's an Englishman, and I'm going to be speaking to him at from where he is in the north of England. Uh, he was formerly the head of the School of Law at Leeds Metropolitan University in England. He has written several books on the law of evidence and is the author of Roads to Rome, a guide to notable converts from Britain and Ireland, from the Reformation to the present day. That was published in 2010. The book that we're going to be discussing, The Mississippi Flows into the Tiber, was published in 2014 by uh, e. Michael Jones's uh, Fidelity Press, and I, sh- I should add that he also occasionally writes. Mr. Beaumont occasionally writes for Culture Wars magazine, also published by E. Michael Jones. So, without any further ado, I'm going to bring on Mr. John Beaumont. Good evening, Mr. Beaumont. How are you? Good evening, brother. I'm uh, I'm fine, thank you, and thank you for inviting me. Oh well, thank you so very much for graciously accepting. I'm, I'm very happy about that. Uh, before I before I uh, uh, proceed with asking you questions about the the interviews, I, mm-hmm. I was I was um, going through your book today, preparing preparing the interview, and I, mm-hmm. I, I was I was pleasantly uh, surprised. Uh, I wanted to see what you said about the first Yankee priest, uh, Father John Thayer, who um, you know I'm calling you from New England, calling Old England, uh, but w- w- there was a priest, kind of a famous, w- well-known, or should be much better known than he is now, Father John Thayer. He was a New England Puritan who converted to Catholicism. I wanted to see what you had to say about him, so I looked and I'm reading, and I saw that you quoted an article. Uh, that I wrote some years ago on, called Fa- Father John Thayer, the first Yankee priest. So I saw my name in print, and it was kind of a surreal experience. Sure. Yes, right. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously you, you so got... you part of the book already. I, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm in the book. I didn't, I didn't even know it until I was just preparing <laughs> myself for this. But... <laughs> So, so, so the 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 Mississippi flows into the Tiber is not your first book, and neither is it your first book on converts. 
The other one being about English and Irish converts, Roads to Rome. How was it that you cultivated this interest uh, in writing about converts? Well, let me say, first of all, I'm a convert myself, so I have a sort of uh, subjective interest uh, in that sense. I became a Catholic in when 1980, quite some time ago now. And I think really what, <clears throat> what led me to write about converts was that I became very interested in the relationship between religion and science. And I was attracted very much by the books of uh, Father Stanley Yarkey, ah. Benedictine priest and physicist, very eminent physicist, who was a member of the Pontifical Academy for Science. And I rather cheekily wrote to him at um, Seton Hall, and to my surprise, he wrote straight back because I I couldn't get his books in uh, in England, and he kindly sent me uh, several of those books, and I ended up doing some work with him actually, and becoming he became a close family friend. He also had a an honorary fellowship at Oxford, and so I used to work with him there on the things that he was doing. I wasn't the expert, he was, and so I did the sort of pedestrian work for him, researching various points. But um, <clears throat> Father Yaki had also written a lot about um, John Henry Newman. In fact, he'd written something like six books. And uh, when he knew I was a convert, he sort of questioned me about that, and he expressed the, his sadness, really, at... Um, uh, he felt that the church was downplaying this issue, was putting forward a sort of a false ecumenism, really, downplaying it. He'd heard uh, even Catholic priests, um, when they were approached, say, by a Baptist who was expressing interest in becoming a Catholic, say, oh, no, stay and be a good Baptist. Mm, yeah, we've met people <laughs> Anathema, who have... really. Yeah. Sorry, yes, you say. Well, we, we've met people who have had similar stories. Uh, by the way, I, right. I, Father Yaki traveled extensively. He, he, I, I met him when I was a college student down in Louisiana, where I'm from. So, right, uh, yes, he, yeah. he, he was very well known in this country. Uh, was he originally Hungarian? Do I have that right? Is, is that where he's from? He was, yeah. Okay. He was originally Hungarian, and then I think around the time of the um, Soviet sort of invasion of Hungary, he uh, he trained, he'd already trained as a Benedictine, and then he was sent to America, basically to teach, um, and he did teach there for a while, and then uh, he had a, a, a tonsillectomy that went wrong, and he lost his voice for 10 years, oh, and he always told me that that was the best thing that ever happened to him, in a way, <laughs> because he couldn't teach any longer, and he could do a, a second doctorate, which he did in physics, and then, surprisingly, his voice came back. <laughs> wow. And uh, he uh, carried on with uh, a great deal of work, wrote a, a lot. Uh, but he, he was rather sad um, about what was happening, he felt, in relation to, to converts. And uh, I was led to look at the uh, statistics, and I came across a set of statistics for America. And between the years of 1939 and 1958, past the 12th, Converts in America increased from 65,000 to 140,000, and the number of seminaries uh, doubled in that time. And those, I think, were pretty uh, significant factors. Um, anyway, Father Yaki uh, encouraged me to, uh, to work on converts, um, just to show that they still existed, basically. Mm-hmm. And uh, that I did, stimulated in many ways by a book he wrote, which was, uh, <coughs> excuse me, which was uh, entitled Newman to Converts. 
in which um, Vardyaki studied the uh, replies that Newman made to the many letters from inquirers and uh, the letters he wrote around the time of his own conversion in 1845. And uh, that really sort of uh, got me going. Uh, I'd always been uh, interested in uh, Newman's writings, uh, even before I became a Catholic. Ah. So that's basically the explanation for you, uh, if that uh, suffices. Oh, that, that more than suffices. It's, uh, so there's the subjective interest of your, yourself being a convert, and then Father Yaki, after you strike up a, a, a friendship with him, he, he yes, laments, yes. laments the fact that conver- conversions aren't happening, and that, uh, that getting converts isn't important for Catholics anymore. You know, you, you, you talk about the, the statistics from the United States. There were books being written by Protestants around that time, um, the, sounding the alarm that the Catholic Church was taking over the the, the United States. Yeah, yeah, um, that's little, right. Little that's did right. little did they know that the Catholic Church was soon to sort of hit a hit a, hit a train wreck, you know, and 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 that would the bottom would drop out of that. Yes, yeah, yeah. The, I mean, I must admit that I, during the research I did, I would look at convert accounts in various journals. Uh, for example, the Month, which was a a Jesuit uh, journal in this country, the Downside Review, which was a Benedictine review, Stonyhurst Review, and many of the American ones, a homiletic and pastoral review and things of that kind. And uh, you did find a sort of change of tone Mm -hmm. around about the early 60s, Um, a sort of, I don't know, an easing up, a liberalization, uh, Mm -hmm. which was not good, I think, because it... uh, gave the impression to people that they could stay where they were yeah. rather than make that uh, important move. Now, you you touch upon three different um, issues that you say are sort of the classical issues, why people uh, convert. Uh, and you'd say that these are the issue of God himself, his existence, the divinity of Christ, and the Church. And um, you hone in on the, the, the latter of the three, the, the, uh, the, the church. So could you say a few things about that, you know, the identity of the true church, how this question leads certain converts into the Catholic Church? Do you see any patterns, any common, you know, common right. aspects of that yes. journey? Yeah, well, it's, it's all shapes and sizes. Um, I think Chesterton said that the, the church is a house with a hundred gates, and no two people enter at exactly the same angle. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I say, the sort of classic approach is through God, Christ, and then the church. Um, in terms of the latter, I think I included something like 469 relatively notable people in the, in the book. Um, the main general influences tended to be Newman, for example, Chesterton, Thomas Aquinas, but one, in a sense, unusual one. Um, it's not unusual in certain respects, but it is in this respect, and that's the question of C.S. Lewis, um, who has become, I think, almost more famous in your country than, uh, than in my own, wow. uh, because Lewis seems to have led quite a lot of people straight into the Catholic Church, and yet he was not a Catholic himself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's of some significance, really. It's unusual. Um, I think why he didn't become a Catholic was 
probably because of his uh, Northern Ireland Protestant upbringing. He never quite got uh, got over that. But he was thought by some people at uh, Oxford and Cambridge to be a sort of uh, a hidden Jesuit. He was not, <laughs> and uh, never ever became a Catholic. Um, so that's, you say, why the church, those are the general influences. Um, the main factors, well, there's several. Um, the people, all I can refer to is people referring to things in their conversion accounts when they make an account. Um, the visibility of the church is one thing that, uh, as you will know, in the New Testament, the, the church is referred to over a hundred times, and it's never referred to in purely spiritual terms. The big sort of shift was in the 16th century, of course, um, with uh, the Protestant Reformation, and the idea of the invisible spiritual church came in. Um, before that, the church was seen as the incarnate body, wasn't it, in a sense? Uh, yeah, the, with a visible the city seated well. on the hill. Yeah. That's right, yeah. that's Robert Hugh Benson uses that phrase on a number of occasions. Um, so that's that's one thing, and I think always a deadly question was the question, where was your church before Luther? Uh -huh. um, that's very difficult to answer that question in terms of invisibility, as it were. Uh, so that's one factor. Um, universality. The church was Catholic in that sense that uh, many converts refer to uh, feeling at home everywhere they go. If only they did now, I hate <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it almost seems um, as if the certain of the notes, I know it's not possible ontologically, but sometimes it seems as if certain of the notes of the church are being erased. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I, I, when I became a Catholic, as I say, in 1980, uh, I sort of try to look back and think what it must have been like when the Mass was more or less identical everywhere you went. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. A very powerful force, quite honestly. Um but that was a feeling of being at home everywhere and uh, the joy that many converts expressed at uh, being in a really big family. And um, I think um, a number of them refer to uh, another fact, which is that they saw in the church what they express as a real democracy. In other words, the rich and the poor together at the uh -huh. communion rails have difficulty finding those rails these days, of course. Mm -hmm, but, uh, mm -hmm. That's a, another question. Um, and and uh, continuity. Sorry, yes, yes, Chesterton calls the tradition the democracy of the dead, right? <laughs> so, so that we have this true democracy in the sense that yeah, it's it's not yeah. just a democracy across across uh, ge geography of those presently alive, but it goes all the way yeah. back. Yes, yeah, yeah. I think that's a significant point, as are many of the points he makes. Uh, um, continuity. Uh, the idea of the, the church being unbroken from the apostles and also unity from the start. Um, I forget who said it, but one of the converts uh, refers to the it being the same old seaworthy ship. It may be untossed and turned, as it were, but the faith is kept intact through all ages. Um, part of that, I think, is a sort of endurance, isn't it? It's a remarkable, the most remarkable thing is that the church keeps on going through bad things, not that it keeps on going through good things. Um, you know, one looks at the uh, sexual abuse crisis, obviously, 
mm-hmm. one looks at um, I think Benedict the Ninth managed to sell the office to a successor or tried to um, sack of Constantinople in 1204 and uh, I rather agree with uh, another famous American but not this time a convert Flannery O'Connor that we have to suffer as much from the church as for it. Yes, um, yes. <laughs> I like that. I like that. That's... Yeah, I think those are very important factors. Um, Julian Green, who's not in the... Um, um, oh, he is. He is, actually, because although he was born in France, he saw himself as being um, an American, the novelist. Um, he says this. I, I'm looking at a quote right now. Uh, he says, it's not the saints that one has to talk about if one is to prove the sanctity of the church. It's bad priests and popes. A church governed by saints continues on. That's normal and human. But a church that can be governed by villains and imbeciles and still continue, that's neither normal nor human. Mm. Um, <laughs> very powerful, I think. I, uh, I've actually heard... I, several of the converts in the book that you cite... Um, mm-hmm. seem to have no problem with the scandals in the church in their day. Uh, in other words, they address them, they address that, yeah, that the, the, there are these problems in the church, but it's a supernatural organism. And I, I recall reading some time back, I couldn't give chapter and verse, but Cardinal Newman, when he went to Rome and was terribly demoralized at the sad state of things in Rome, said something to the effect of, this must be a supernatural institution, because no, no no merely human institution could survive the ineptitude of its leaders. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I, I'm not sure whether it's it, it's Newman. It, there's, a, there's a story that goes out um, with regard to a story of a Jew, doesn't it, who becoming discontented with Judaism went in search of a new religion, and he tried a lot and rejected many and came at last to Rome. And uh, the story goes that this was in the heyday of its Renaissance wickedness, indulgences were shamelessly sold and murder stalked the streets there was corruption in high places and sexual perversion was rampant um, and on every side luxury and ostentation of the few outraged the misery and poverty of the many well having witnessed this for some months he then joined the catholic church and when he was asked by a friend why he did so again it's the point that you make it's uh, only a religion which is true he said could survive such behavior on the part of his <laughs> exponents, uh, yeah. and uh, right enough, really. Uh, um, Walker Percy, I think you mentioned him in an email to me. Yes. Um, uh, Walker Percy was, at one point, he was absolutely fed up of doctoral students ringing him up or writing him letters, wanting interviews. So he decided to create a fictitious interview where he interviewed himself. And um, it's wonderful to read. It's in the book, actually. There's an extract in the book. It, and, is, uh, wo- it is wonderful. I read it today, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. <laughs> thoroughly enjoyed it. I mean, one of the speakers, uh, one of the so-called questioners says, uh, isn't the Catholic Church in a mess these days? Badly split, its liturgy barbarized, vocations declining. And Walker Percy says, sure, that's a sign of its divine origins, <laughs> that it survives these periodic disasters. Uh, couldn't be put better, could it? Well, that's uh, what really I, right. having read that and having read a similar thing that Joe Sobrin wrote, because you have an entry on him, too, yeah, I, I, yeah. that's what led me to ask that question about, you know, these men seem to have been unfazed by the, the yeah, scandals yeah, of their yeah. day. Now, now, yeah, why yeah. don't we get, if we, could, if we could get a little bit more specific about some of the converts, you just mentioned 
mentioned Walker Percy, uh, and he's somebody that interests me greatly. This is Brother Andre Marie, and my guest is Mr. John Beaumont, the author of the book, The Mississippi Flows Into the Tiber. You're listening to Reconquest on the Crusade Premium Channel, part of the Veritas Radio Network. So, John, Walker Percy Ooh. is... A Southerner like me, I'm a displaced Southerner. I live in New England, but I originally come from Louisiana. And he was born in Alabama and went to Louisiana, New Orleans. He taught for a time at Tulane, which is where my parents went to school. Um, Mm -hmm. And it was there that he he was. By by the way, he launched the literary, uh, sadly short-lived literary career of a man who tragically committed suicide, uh, mm-hmm. who, who who wrote the book, oh, The Confederacy yeah. of Dunces, which um, yeah. anyone from, uh, you almost have to be from New Orleans to understand that book. Um, yes, yeah, right. Um, I, it's, it's not a book I, I've read, though. I've seen lots of references to it, and I really should read it. It, um, it, it, it is an amazingly funny book and very well written a little vulgar in spots but um uh the 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 author was uh a very good author it's his only book and tragically before the book got published he he had committed suicide yes yeah because um i think it's probably the case isn't it that if it hadn't been for walker percy he probably wouldn't have got it published no, I, I think i read somewhere that's uh, correct his mother the, the man's mother sent um sent the book to uh walker percy and asked him to yeah, yeah. To, to read it and he did and he, he couldn't believe how good it was and he had it published right uh, right so. yeah and of course there's the tragedy of suicide in Percy's life, isn't there as well? I believe um, his father and grandfather both had committed suicide. That's right, yeah, yeah. And as a result, he was brought up, I think, by this uncle Will, his bachelor uncle, um, yes. who uh, paid for his university education, I think. Yeah, Now, the, Now, the, he, he was a novelist, but he didn't exclusively write novels, and he was a, a physician by, by training. Yeah, and um, yeah. but but he but he became really known as a man of letters, and I, presumably because of his uh, background as a physician, his medical training, he was interested as Doc, uh, Father Yaki was in this sort of this this uh, common ground, you know, where science meets faith. But yeah, he yeah. was also terribly interested in semiotics and and, and the language language and 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 the symbolic value of words and so forth. So some of his nonfiction is exploring um, language, and one of the most profound things he wrote is in it's a passage I think in Lost in the Cosmos about Helen right. Keller and how she. Oh yes, indeed, yes, yeah, yeah. Do you do you remember that passage where he talks about Helen Keller bridging? Yeah, I, I, I do. I mean, I remember being impressed by the fact that uh, he was obviously unimpressed by the idea that we're just um, uh, animals and that we do no more than uh, um, act out things. Um, and he... he was extremely good, wasn't you, on the, the sort of ability to hu- of human beings to conceptualize things. Yeah. And I don't recall the exact situation with Helen Keller, but well, I remember that that was significant to him. Well, you, 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 you basically outlined it. I mean, the, the, but the specific thing that he argues is that, that Helen Keller, um, when Anne, um, I'm forgetting her, her last name, Sullivan, Anne Sullivan, uh, who was her, who trying to teach her, she taught her all these signs, and Helen Keller knew that, you know, knew what these various signs meant. 
But it wasn't until she grasped the concept of the verb to be that she transitioned from acting like an animal uh, who could, you know, sort of parrot the signs for these things to actually being a human capable, you know, actually exercising abstract thought. And and once she got over that barrier, and, and Percy was so obsessed about the concept of the copulative verb to be, that's when she went from right. acting yes. like an animal yes. to acting like a human. Yes, yes, yeah. I mean, the idea, I think, I, the message I sort of got from Percy was that his, um, his examinations of science brought him to the firm conclusion that the only thing science could say about man were those generalizations that held for the entire species um, but while science could generalize about the human creature it couldn't put its finger on the unique endowment of the of the human being i think it's that aspect isn't it that's important yes yes the, the idea to conceptualize to talk about abstract things uh, to think about oneself thinking about something abstract um, and that presumably is what he got originally from uh, um, his examination of Helen Keller's uh, experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that's something, I mean, I went to LSU for some time, Louisiana State University, and believe it or not, they had there was a class there called um, Religion in Literature, and the, Lost in the Cosmos was one of the texts that we had to read. Right, uh, right. So it was, it was... I'm surprised you were allowed to read that at a university these days. Well, or, uh... <laughs> the, the professor was remarkably enlightened or unenlightened, depending upon what your perspective is. Uh, right. But it was... It was right. One of the more interesting classes I had at, at LSU. Um, so, and he, he wrote an, a number of, of novels sort of exploring these as a, as a, a literary man can. Yeah, uh, yes. Now, uh, some, one of the converts that you mentioned in the book is a man that I met, and I had the good privilege of, of meeting him, and we actually hosted him here at our, at our place here in New Hampshire, mm-hmm. St. Benedict Center, and that's Joe Sobrin. Uh, right. Who we, yes. We yeah. had him speak at a conference we hosted. Um, he says a lot of the same things as Walker Percy about the utter uniqueness of the Catholic Church and the utter uniqueness of Jesus Christ. And the a theme that I found in some of the things you excerpted from Sobrin was he uses as an apologetic how hated Christ is <laughs> and how hated. Yes. The church is, and he turns yeah, this yes. against the the polemicists who are on the other side to show that this is one of the proofs of the veracity of the religion. Yeah, yes, yeah. It's similar to Fulton Sheen, of course, who makes the same point with regard to these things. Um, yeah, what interested me about Sobin was his attitude to the Gospels in relation to Christ's divinity. Um, he says at one point that it uh, defies belief to suppose that four simple evangelists could have made up the most memorable, influential, and lovable character in human history, besides whom Muhammad is a mere ghost. And uh, <laughs> in, his de- in his debate with Christopher Hitchens, he says, um, if it's that easy, let Hitchens try his hand at it. Um, a few beatitudes and parables would satisfy me, <laughs> <laughs> which I think is it's wonderful, really. Nobody's so going to well, be citing the parables of, of, of Hitchens in, in any years to come, <laughs> are they? Yeah, um, I think Sobran was 
treated very badly, wasn't he, in relation to a number of aspects which we needn't go into. But, well, uh, actually, um, I don't mind. Admirable character. I don't mind going into them because I, I, I met him and I talked to them a little bit about some of those things. I mean, he was destined to be one of the great American public intellectuals, something we don't have that many of here. And yeah, he yeah. was being groomed for that position. Uh, I think 18 years he was one of the managing editors of uh, National Review, uh, yes, quite, headed quite. by uh, William F. Buckley, who was a, who was a Catholic, um, uh, sadly, you know, wrapped up in the sort of neo conservative political establishment. Yes, I'm afraid so, yeah. And, yeah, uh, and, yeah. and so Sobrin got into some issues that, that uh, he, he was brought into an office by one of the men that worked at National Review saying, you've wandered from the reservation. <laughs> and he uh. said, I didn't know I was on a reservation. Uh, yes, quite, because, quite. So... Uh. No, I, I, I've been so impressed by his uh, his work. I did write, I, I do write uh, some things for the St. Austin's Review, which is now, used to be published in England, is published in America. I wrote a little piece on, um, on Joe Sobran. Um, uh, he has what some people consider to be radical views on the authorship of Shakespeare, but uh, I find actually the book he wrote on that quite impressive. But... Um, uh, his essays are marvellous, undoubtedly, and uh, one thing I would say is uh, there is no way that this man was an anti-Semite. No, no, and of course that was that was what he was accused of wandering from the reservation on, um, yeah, that issue. Yeah. But no, I, I met him and spoke to him, and no, he didn't have a hateful bone in his body. Even when he was being an- angrily and s- shockingly vilified, he he wasn't hateful. I mean, he he was uh, he not not in the least. So did he come to your center and speak? Then you were saying he uh, did. What, yes. What did he- yeah, what did he speak on? Uh, believe it, or, believe it or not, he spoke on the subject of of uh, Abraham Lincoln and uh, uh-huh. and the destruction of the Constitution. <laughs> he was a, <laughs> an implacable enemy of Abraham Lincoln. Which yes, yeah, I know, he, he I was, know. He yeah. was never one to be taken by any sort of uh, political correctness. That's for sure. Mm. Uh, but I, what I what I what most impressed me about him reading his essays is his incredible wordcraft, and I suppose that that had a lot to do with his being a student of Shakespeare's, because he could uh, si- yes yeah. he could recite the Bard from memory long passages, and I heard him do it. He had a uh, he had a, 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 a gin some sort of gin drink in one hand and a cigar in the other, and he very mellifluously recited some um, some ex- excerpt of a Shakespeare play, which I can't remember which it was, and he right. had us all spellbound. It was very charming. But. Yeah, he he did write some commentaries, I think, didn't he, on some of the plays? I think I've seen those. Uh, um uh, on Amazon, they were available, and uh, I think also they they put together two volumes of his uh, his main essays. Um, I think one is on the National Review material, and the other one is um, his essays defending Christianity. Basically, I don't know whether you've seen that book, but it's uh, mightily impressive. No, I I used, I used to subscribe to his newsletter, so I I read a lot of the essays when he published yes, them of course, in, in yeah, Sobrans. they they've sort of pushed them together and put into a book, which is very impressive indeed really yeah 
Do, do, do you want me to talk about um, some other motivations for joining the church? I did mention uh, about three of them. I don't know whether you want to go sure, down that sure, road. Sure, sure. Actually, could, could I run by, when we talk about motivations, I, I don't want to take you off your train of thought, but... No, it's okay. I, I'd just like to see what you have to say about this. I, I've, I've told people, of course, this goes back to what um, Chesterton says and you quote about the hundred gates, and nobody comes to the church through the same angle and through these hundred gates. But if we look at the transcendentals, the true, the good, and the beautiful, in my limited study, actual systematic study of converts, um, it seems to me that you have converts who convert through the true transcendental. In other words, they're on a quest to see what is objectively true in matters of religion. Then you have the people who are converted by goodness. They read the lives of the saints, or they are impacted by the moral goodness of Catholics, and they see that this is the good religion. And then you have a third category of people who convert because of the transcendental of beauty, and they see beauty in the church, her chant, her liturgy, her architecture, vestment, everything. Now, you touched upon that in a lecture that I saw you you give, talking about how, how Gregorian chant in the past had converted so many people. Uh, do you think that right. those? You, do you think that those? I, I realize that you, you, we, we can't hyper quantify things so much, but do you think that those are three legitimate ways of looking of categorizing converts? Well, I, th- I think they are because the the three I started to speak to you about, uh, let's say, visibility, universality, continuity, are really rational things or historical things that follow from an investigation and don't necessarily follow from any spiritual desire really. The other one of course is authority that I think a lot of converts and this Walker Percy is a good example that he was impressed by the what he called the church's insolent claim to be actually true. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> and you know the true church must be one that actually claims to be the pillar and foundation of truth which is what the Catholic Church does. Immediately when a church says to you uh, on the basis that there's one only one church as Christ is one the church is one if a church, supposed church, says, well, no, lots of others have got, you know, bits of the truth, can't be the true church, can it, really, logically? But you then mentioned beauty. Well, yes, beauty and not just beauty, the mass as well, although mm-hmm. there's the beautiful aspect of that. On beauty, numerous people mention all sorts of things. You mentioned Gregorian chant, medieval architecture, illuminated manuscripts, um, uh, Thomistic philosophy, which clearly appeals to to many people, um, with its rigor, and then the art. Um, you know, the church is uh, the repository of so much art, isn't it? That um, it's not surprising that people come from that uh, direction. The mass itself. I think it was John Senior of the. He was the person at Kansas. Yeah, I don't know if you know about him. Oh, about sure, the, sure. Kansas University, remarkable character who um, was so good at getting converts that the university there stopped them from teaching the course uh, that they were doing, which was on the great books. It wasn't directly Catholic, but of course so many of the great books are Catholic, and uh, they got, oh, many, many converts, and eventually some became Benedictines and even founded, I think, an establishment in the United States. Uh, Correct. That would be Our Lady of Clear Creek in Clear Creek, Oklahoma. 
That's right, yes. He says, I think, somewhere that Christian culture exists mainly to perpetuate the Mass. That's why people live, uh, mm. in that sense. Um, so I think all of those things, and of course the saints being living examples of holiness, and not just that, is it? It's the fact that the, the saints provide us with an enormous variety of goodness, all sorts of different um, attitudes that appeal to some people and not to others. Um, you know, one thinks of St. Philip Neri, and then one thinks of, I don't know, uh, St. Dominic. <laughs> Very different in their uh, initial outlet really, or outlook. Um, but that. yes, I think that's, uh, you're right in terms of uh, beauty. And the other thing was, was goodness, wasn't it? The idea of, I think, one comes across a lot of converts who refer to the fact that they are so pleased that the church, and very often it's only the church these days, stands as a sign of contradiction and opposes the main planks of secular humanism, namely sexual liberation. Mm. I've heard many people who entered the church basically because of her stance on pro-life issues. You know, if she can stand in that way, that's good enough for me, somebody said at some point. And unless you accept moral teaching, well, where is the idea of free will? It disappears, doesn't it, uh, mm. really? Well, um, that was one of the arguments that Sobert had. He said, I don't defend the Church's teachings against contraception because I'm a Catholic. I'm a Catholic, and I remain so because I find that she has the most cogent moral doctrine on sexual matters. Yeah. Yes, yes, that was yes, a powerful that's, that's argument, right. I thought. Absolutely right. And uh, on beauty and morality, I have to mention the, the Blessed Mother, because uh, so many converts express a really often it's a cry for help to her, which uh, is at least a, a mover in part into the church. Uh, I mean, I did in my book uh, deal, of course, not just with uh, converts, but with uh, reverts as well. And in the scope of converts, uh, I, I got a great deal from uh, dealing with deathbed converts. And uh, um, I think it's almost an argument for the Catholic Church, because frankly, you don't really get as far as I'm aware, many calls of uh, get me a minister of the <laughs> Presbyterian Church. Yes, uh, quick, uh, quick, get the Methodist parson. Quick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You don't really see it, do you? And it's not just in literature such as in Brideshead Revisited, but uh, it's in real life, isn't it? Um, well, I've uh, actually... One of our brothers was was talking to a, a Protestant, and he used this argument. He said, "You know, the, you don't see anybody calling Protestant ministers to their deathbed. It, it happens with Catholic. It, they call Catholic priests, yeah, though." Yeah, and the fellow yeah. was a Protestant. He was bitterly anti-Catholic, and he, and he said, "Yeah, it happened in my own family. <laughs> so one of his relatives died and called a Catholic oh called a Catholic priest to his deathbed and converted. So um, oh it's a, amazing how that argument remains." Well, uh, it does, isn't it? I mean, the interesting thing about the, the Brideshead Revisited thing is um, that that War actually based it on a friend of his, um, the the final Lord Marchmain who converts, of course, on his deathbed, was based on, I think, uh, um, was it Hubert Duggan, who was a friend of his, who had got into all sorts of bother, as it were, and finally, uh, you know, made that request, and uh, War was able to... Uh, supply the priest for him uh, who did the necessary deed uh, wow. so it's 
it's not just a literary thing. It, I think it literally does happen. Now, now there's yeah. there's another couple of there are two converts that I'd like you to talk about in tandem with each other, if you would. Uh, one of them, okay. one of them was kind of a professor of mine, uh, Father Benedict Ashley, uh, the, the the Dominican right. who died. I think yeah. he died just about a year or so before you published the book. He, yes. Um, I just, I, I'm just thinking whether he actually died. I think he had, yes, and uh, I, I gained an I, immense amount from his writings. Now he he, he died. Now he he died. I think in 2013, and your book I think came out in 2014. Um, right, but, but yeah. he yeah. he was influenced by Mortimer Adler, who was a Jew, who was a Thomas philosopher, who yeah. spent yeah. some time in Episcopalianism, and then I think at the ripe old age of something like 97. He yeah, became yes, a Catholic. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I don't know. The, the thing with, let's take Adler. Um, I mean, he was more Thomist than most Thomists, wasn't he? And uh, a brilliant man. Wasn't he at University of Chicago with Robert Hutchins? Correct. Um, he was the the great books the great books course. That's at the right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I. I, I'm immensely impressed with his uh, all of his books. They're beautifully written and very clearly put, and yet they're all written, I think, at a time when he was still uh, not a Catholic. It's probably isn't there a isn't there a marriage issue here that's involved in with all Adler? This, I, I don't recall. I think, uh, there could well be. I know that he yes, was. He was. Yes. I know that he was Jewish, and uh, he he was basically a Thomas philosopher long before he was ever baptized. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yes, yeah. Um, it sort of reminds me a bit of. Uh, do you know? Do you know over there, um, Professor Roger Scruton, who's just died? Yes, the philosopher. Of yes. Here. Well, Scruton was um, a brilliant man. Absolutely brilliant man. A sort of. Uh, conservative philosopher um and he uh i know john haldane quite well who's a catholic philosopher in uh, britain and i think spent some time at notre dame as a, a professor um and he told me that um scruton got so close to becoming a catholic um and, and never did um, he was very much influenced by Monsignor Gilby over here, who was a famous traditional priest who was chaplain at Cambridge for many, many years and brought many converts into the church. And Scruton, uh, as I say, never converted, but I think it was because very early on in his life uh, he'd gone to France, he'd married a young French girl, he was young himself, and the church did not grant him an annulment. And so he eventually remarried much more maturely and never actually became Catholic. Now, I wonder whether Adler perhaps was in that situation and maybe his wife died and he was able to uh, to take the, the step. I don't know. I see, I, know I see. One. But he was complete ignorance on that. He was quite old when he ended up converting. But I, I knew a priest. In fact, he was our one-time chaplain, who in seminary. Now, this priest was quite old when he told me the story. So this stretches back mm-hmm. quite a bit. But in seminary, Mortimer Adler spoke to the class, and these seminarians were absolutely riveted by yeah. the lecture yeah. they just heard from a Jew who's talking to them about Saint Thomas. And yeah, one of the yeah, seminarians yeah. said, well, prof- Dr. Adler, you know, how is it that you know all this about St. Thomas and you yourself aren't a Catholic? And he said, well, you know, 
I haven't had the grace, I haven't had the gift of faith given to me yet. (laughs) Well, I was going to say to you, when you said to me, what things motivate people to become Catholics, I was, of course, going to preface it by however much reason is involved, uh, grace is the important thing. And um, I think, yeah, uh, perhaps uh, he was right. He hadn't. Uh, When I first read him, I thought he was a Catholic. I had absolutely no idea that he wasn't. Never suspected for one moment that he wasn't until I then uh, came across, I think he wrote a couple of autobiographies and... uh, once I'd read those, it was clear that he that he hadn't made the move, uh, um, but he did in time. Now, one so, one of his students at the University of Chicago was a communist atheist uh, named Ashley. I don't I don't know. I think Benedict was his religious name in the Dominican Order. I, I can't recall. Yes, he, he's he was born Winston okay. Norman Ashley. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And he took the names Benedict Mary, I think, as a, as a Dominican. Uh, yeah, he was a communist, wasn't he? Yeah. Mm. Now, he had a tremendous sense um, of the unity of knowledge. In other words, that there was... I mean, I remember studying his course. He impressed upon his students the um, the fact that theology is the queen of all of the sciences, and that there, that you know, the, the, this quest, for instance, in physics for the grand unified theory, you know, this has basically already been accomplished in <laughs> in Catholicism, yes. because yes, we, we have a queen of all the sciences, and it is theology, and uh, and and in the natural order, metaphysics is the highest of all of the natural sciences, and that's where we get a a, a unification of all knowledge. Uh, it, to me, that was very impressive that he, he, he and, and you could see the influence of St. Thomas, right? Because everything was ordered. Everything was logos, really, as, as Dr. Jones would tell us. There was yes, a, indeed. An, a completely intelligible order in the universe because it comes from an intelligent mind and it, it's intelligible. So we, we, can, we can intuit in it this, this order and therefore there must be some ordering of knowledge. To me, that, that was uh, Father Benedict Ashley's contribution, anyway, to my intellectual formation was to yes, get that appreciation. Indeed. A remarkable individual, and uh, I I came across him through, I think he wrote a three-volume, uh, like an autobiography in a sense, uh, on, under the orders of his um, his superiors, in which he goes into, in considerable detail, the development of his mind, and uh, very, very impressive um, uh, from a man who, as a, as a young man, was something of a rebel, I think, wasn't he? Um, and rather scathing about the uh, the idea of uh, religion, but he says somewhere, doesn't he, that um, uh, <clears throat> that it was under the guidance, wasn't it, of Mortimer Adler? Yes. And still better, I think he said, of Saint Thomas Aquinas, that convinced him at least abstractly of uh, of God's existence, and that led him to look further and to see that um, you know there there must be a first cause. And uh, the idea that um, uh, a determinist scientific approach could explain such things as uh, a notion of purpose and intelligence and free will were simply wrong. Um, 
that's all I can say, really. I I, I remember reading in uh, some detail his uh, three volumes. I think they've probably now been put together into one volume. You will know more about that, I think. Than, uh, well, I'm, I'm actually not sure about his writings. I, 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 I have, I think, one book by him, but it's not autobiographical. Um, anyway, but he, he, one of the things that I remember from him that I thought was hilarious was he, he even wanted us to see a unity of history, you know, God's providence in history. Um, and he quoted an, an American historian um, who, who I cannot recall the historian's name, but uh, mm. the, the, this historian said that uh, he, was, he was sort of mocking the approach to history, studying history in a completely asystematized way. And he said, right. and he reduced that to history is just one damn thing after another. And what father father and I I wish I could remember the name of the historian who said this as as a joke he was he was mocking that position, but Father Ashley assures us that no history really is not just one damn thing after another and uh, it was it was uh, it was indeed Mortimer Adler who introduced him to Saint Thomas and it was Saint Thomas who took this atheist communist and made him a Catholic and eventually of course a Dominican priest <laughs> like St. Thomas. Is that right? Yeah, well, of course, yes, that's right in, in, in his case, yeah. Uh, I think also um, um, Father uh, Ashley is very good on the question of um, suffering, of evil and uh, pain, deals with it very well. I think, didn't he have a brother who was agnostic and he uh, writes to him a very sort of consoling letter. Um, I'm, I, I'm not on the page, <laughs> the page of the book at the moment, but uh, I seem to remember something of that kind, which I found very moving at the time. Um, of course, there are certain things that one couldn't put in the book because of um, page limitation. Um, uh, I didn't, in fact, and you mentioned it in an email to me, um, put in the the incident between Hemingway and uh, Wallace Stevens. Yeah, t- Which, two converts uh, who notably had a fistfight in, I think, Key West, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think Hemingway won. <laughs> yeah. I think he was a, a, a more in-shape man. I think he, he was... Uh, well, maybe he was a bit of a bruiser, let's say. Uh, yes. Is that a way of putting it? Uh, yeah, now, yeah. I, have to ad- I have to admit, I wasn't so good about telling you that we had less than five minutes, but we're, we're, we're coming across the four-minute left mark. And, um, okay. and by way of uh, by way of wrapping up, I mean, it, first of all, it needs to be said, you you treat you said you didn't have that much, you couldn't fit everything in. I mean, the, the book is after all a thousand pages only, uh, and in, you, you have something like with E. Michael Jones, it's very short. <laughs> <laughs> you have something like four hundred and sixty nine individuals that you uh, whose whose conversions you trace, and, and each one says. Uh, when they were born, when they were converted, uh, when they died, and uh, wh- where you can, you 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 give. If it's somebody who wrote, you you quote something salient about that person's conversion, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I give a I give a summary of their lives uh, when I can. Um, who do I choose? Well, there are certain notable people who have got to be in there. Um, there are then people who I'm attracted to because they give very solid accounts, very persuasive accounts um, of their conversion. So that's basically the approach. And uh, I try 
to quote those aspects of it, you know, mm. the, the reasons they put forward, um, to give some indication. And uh, I think I, I don't necessarily um, deal with the most saintly people in the most detail, because some of them said very little about their process of conversion. Um, what I try to do is to give a, a detailed account, and I think Benedict Ashley is fairly detailed, because I was so impressed with the uh, the writings he did in the course of his uh, conversion walk, as it were. Do you have any favorites among the 469 that you wrote up? Well, let me think. I must go back to John Senior at the University of Kansas. As somebody myself who's taught in several universities, uh, uh, I'm immensely impressed with what they did on that great books mm. course you know, and the, the results that came from it. Uh, he tragically died, I think, fairly early in his life, really, and, and the University of Kansas took the unfortunate secularist approach of, uh, of banning the course because mm. he was turning out uh, too many converts. So he impresses me particularly. Walker Percy we've mentioned... Hemingway does, but only because I read H.R. Stoneback's work on Hemingway, which showed me that, you know, we're all sinners, I particularly, and I can relate to uh, to Hemingway, I think. But I think what Stoneback did was to get rid of this notion that Hemingway was a fake. I see, uh, I see. I don't think he was. I don't think I he was at all. I think he was genuinely Catholic, but uh, as I say, a sinner like us all. And a fascinating story, really, of his uh, his life uh, comes through from uh, Stoneback's writings. So, yeah, there are some who impressed me, good and bad, as it were. Yes, and there's a real there's a real uh, gamut of of humanity in this book, showing that there's hope for us all, huh? <laughs> yeah, at the end of the day, there is. That's absolutely true, and I think that's one of the uh, important aspects of it. Uh, they're not all saints, and uh, Dutch Schultz is in there, who was, of course, a gangster and a murderer, <laughs> and the controversy that uh, arose when uh, when he converted uh, shortly before his death. Yeah, but a very vigorous argument went on in the press and until a priest stepped in and put the Catholic position accurately. Excellent. And uh, gave, us all, gave us all hope, really. I Excellent. Think. Well, I, I want to thank you, John Beaumont, for being my guest. Your book, again, is The Mississippi Flows Into the Tiber. Oh. You publish occasionally in E. Michael Jones's Culture Wars magazine, correct? I do, indeed, yeah. Do you have any other books you're working on presently? Well, strangely enough, I am working on a <laughs> yet another book on converts, a sort of lighter book, really, uh, which consists of a lot of the things I did, I've done for the St. Austin's Review, okay. um, just uh, general accounts of uh, some of the individuals, some of whom are in the, the book, some are British, some are American, and some are from other uh, uh, countries. So, uh, yeah, I, I do that. The... Uh, the Roads to Rome, the 2010 book, that's published by St. Augustine's Press. Uh, that's in South Bend, um, Indiana. And similarly, uh, the, the Mississippi book uh, is published uh, uh, by um, E. Michael Jones mm -hmm. and uh, Fidelity Press. And uh, people can obtain that from uh, culturewars.com. That's the simplest way, although it is available on Amazon as both of them are. Great. You've been listening to Reconquest on the Crusade Premium Channel, part of the Veritas Radio Network. God bless and Mary keep you.